And good morning. Um, <clears throat> I really appreciate what Marcus said earlier. I, I know that I and many of you feel a great debt of gratitude uh, to those men that gave themselves up for us and to those families who lost loved ones. So if you're grieving here this morning, it is Memorial Day. Um, please know that we're grieving with you. I also want to um, extend a, a welcome to all the families of the graduates that are here today. And graduates, we are very excited for you. This is a, a new step, and I know that you're going to make good decisions. If not, we're going to come and find you. <laughs> we're glad you're here. Well, it was a very strange kind of experiment. It was sort of one of those sociological kind of experiments. How is someone going to respond in this situation? A group of researchers put together a commonplace scenario. It was a lot of people together who were just tossing a ball back and forth to each other. And then one more person was introduced. And unbeknownst to her, the ball was never going to be tossed to her. So she enters into this scene. People are laughing, enjoying themselves, tossing a ball, just passing the time. And she, with a big smile on her face, is right there with them expecting at some point the ball is going to come to her. So she's smiling for a while. She moves in closer. Then the smile starts to feel a little more forced. And then she starts to back away as the ball never comes to her, realizing that she's not part of this game that's being played. And eventually she walks away and when those researchers came to her and interviewed her and asked her how she felt about that, she said that, that per the researchers said that that person experienced a sense of remorse and a lack of purpose in life. Now, imagine that this is not a game. Imagine that this is life. Except for a ball not being tossed, it's someone who's not gotten a phone call, who's someone whose, whose name has never been dropped, and they're still waiting, still at the edge of a game, wondering if they're ever going to really participate in this thing called life. You see, loneliness has become an epidemic in the United States of America. As a matter of fact, there was another study that was done. It was done by Brigham Young University. And they determined that, that loneliness kills. That's the conclusion of a new study that was done at Brigham Young University. Researchers who say they are sounding the alarm on what could be the next big public health issue on par with obesity and substance abuse. In addition to that, there was something done called the Grant Study. And maybe you've heard about this. It was done at Harvard University, and they wanted to find out what factors contribute to human well-being and happiness. In other words, when you take someone who's a young man, what kind of choices are they going to make throughout their life that will give them a sense of well-being and happiness and a long life? So they selected 268 men and studied them over a period of 72 years. And during that study, they monitored everything. They monitored uh, lifestyle choices. What kind of an exercise regimen did they have? What did they eat? 
How did they respond in stressful situations? Did they employ some kind of self-defense technique? And that study concluded, actually it concluded uh, not so long ago, and someone sought out the one who had taken over from Dr. Grant and said, okay, well, what was your result? And they were expecting some really clear kind of answer about lifestyle choices and things, and this was the answer. The only thing that really matters in life are your relationships to other people. That all the factors basically were negated, longevity and all those things, whenever they just simply saw what kind of relationships did this person have. You see, relationships in life are absolutely crucial. Going on, uh, they've discovered in the United Kingdom that loneliness has become a societal epidemic. It actually, it can cause cardiovascular disease, dementia, depression. And according to some researchers, its effect on mortality is similar to smoking, actually worse. And it also leads to a likelihood of poverty that increases 20%. Now, there have never been more people on the planet than what we have right now. And yet we have a bigger problem with loneliness and isolation than we have ever had. And then I get to a verse like what we find in Genesis 2.18 where God himself states, it is not good that man should be alone. So we're going to dive into this question today, how then can I find community? How can I be in true community and this morning, we're going to start out in Genesis chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 26 and 27. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You may be seated. We're currently in the middle of a series called Vital Signs, and we're looking at those things that are of vital health uh, to the church. And in the same way, you have blood pressure that can be monitored, a pulse rate that can be monitored. There are things in the life of a church that need to be monitored in order to determine if a church is healthy or not. And we've been going through Acts chapter 2, looking at verses 41 through 47. And in those verses, it outlines these five things. Worship, instruction, fellowship, evangelism, and service. Two weeks ago, we talked about worship, how to be a true worshiper of God. Then we, last week, we talked about instruction, and we saw the importance of being a lifelong learner as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to tackle this thing called fellowship. To be in fellowship is to be in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And we'll look at this in three ways. We'll look at it in terms of the maker of community. Then we'll look at the mess of community. And then finally, we'll look at the marks of community. The maker of community, the mess of community, and the marks of community. Now, we saw there in Acts 2.42, this very early church that had started, 3,000 people who had come to faith in Christ. 
And we took a look at what they were doing. And one of the things they were doing, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Right up there with the importance of teaching for this group of young Christians was fellowship. Now, the first part I want to tackle with this is this idea of who is the maker of community? And beyond that, who is the model of community? The maker and the model of community. So let's think about that for just a second. And the capital M should probably give it away that you saw earlier about the maker of community. Because only God is the maker of community. And he is the model of community. Now, if you're like me, I, I, or maybe you're not. I'd be thankful if you're not, actually. Uh, when I've thought about the eternality of God, so we serve a God who has always been. Now, just sitting with that for a while is, is mind-bending because inevitably what I start thinking about is, so like, what did God do for all that time before he created anything? It was interesting. We sang about it this morning. He was uh, imagining and contemplating what he was about to create. But still, we're talking about a lot of time, right, before he created. And in just thinking about that, I've thought, well, did he ever, like, did he ever, like, get lonely? I mean, there was a time before he created man, the earth, the universe. There was a time before he created the angels. What was going on during that period? What, was he lonely? Well, the truth is, no. He was never lonely through that period of time. We believe in a triune God. That is a God who is three persons. All three have eternally coexisted in loving, giving, and selfless relationships. So, when we look in the Scriptures, I want to look at some related to this. I'm going to start with John 3.35. It says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. So we've got this loving relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father loves the Son. Then in John 14, 31, it says, this is Jesus speaking, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So we've got this love between the Son and the Father. And then it goes beyond that, because when the Holy Spirit comes into the picture in John 16, 14, um, he speaks, Christ is speaking here of the Holy Spirit, and says, he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine, and declare it to you. So in addition to that, in, in uh, John 3.11, it says that Jesus sees the Father. It says that he hears the Father in John 3.32. It says he does what the Father does in John 5.19. Then finally, the Holy Spirit speaks what he hears and gives what is the Son's and the Father's to the disciples there in John, in John 16. So we've got these dynamic relationships going on among the members of the Trinity. And I like what Scott Harrell says about this. He's a, he was a teacher I had on the Trinity back in seminary. He said, whatever seeing, hearing, and doing may imply regarding the Trinity, the terms at least convey dynamic relationship each with one another. So we've got this model of relationship, this model of community going on among the three persons of God. 
Now, just the Trinity is one of the deepest mysteries of Christianity. One God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But now we've got these relationships that are going on among those members. And in those verses, and, and John is a wonderful book that gives us insight into the three persons of the Trinity. We see uh, the, the background peeled away in order for us to understand what's going on in heaven among these persons of the Trinity. And we see that they exist in relationship, all three persons. We get further insight into this with what the Bible says and what we read before in Genesis 1:26 and 1:27. What did God say? Let us make man in our image. We were made in the image of God, and we were made for relationship. We were made to be in relationship. You see, so many problems ensue when we try to break ourselves loose from other people because that's not what we're made for because God made man to be in community. Uh, a guy named George McLeod, he actually wrote a book called uh, The Trinity and the Fellowship of God's People. He was this, this Scottish theologian, and he remarks to this. He says, there is a social life in the Godhead itself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live in community and fellowship. The same must be true of us. We were made for this. But it leads to this question. If we were made to be in community, why is it that we so often try to avoid it? I mean, I don't know about you, but there's times when I just like, I just want to be alone, period. And there's times when it's very difficult to be with people. And I doubt I'm alone in that. <clears throat> now, some of you are extroverts, and being around people is like being around a bunch of little batteries, and they just so charge you up. But there's others, uh, and, and being around someone who's an extrovert is like a vampire sticking its fangs into the side of your neck, <laughs> sucking out your life force. And there's days, and I've taken all the personality tests. There, there's days when I, I test and I'm an extrovert. There's days I've tested and I'm an introvert. I, I'm all over the place. Normally, I'm pretty much charged up by people, but not always. So we've got people on both sides of the fence. Not only that, but you know, we've probably got, on Sundays, we average, we get about 500 or so people in here. That means we've got about 500 different opinions on life and how things should be done, and how we should be doing stuff. So with all that, all those opinions and lifestyles, that means that community is not going to be easy. So secondly, let's talk about this mess of community, okay? It's not an easy thing. See, we've got different political affiliations. We've got different socioeconomic backgrounds. We've got people of different races, different cultures. And you know what? People are living longer than they ever have, so we've never had more of a diversity of age. So all those factors are going on, and now we're all sort of mashed together in this hodgepodge of people, and sometimes it feels like, if we're going to be honest, we're just kind of making it through a Sunday so we can get back to the people that we really want to be in community with. 
the people we really like. Because with all that difference in political and personality conflict, with all that awkwardness and uncomfortability, we can't really have a healthy church, can we? Or can we? The truth is this is all quite normal, see? And um, the awkwardness and the disappointment, can, and even it can be downright meanness sometimes that we show to each other, uh, is, a, is a fact of life. And this is nothing new. That's the good news. This is nothing new. And I want to look at two verses. First, 1 John, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says, therefore, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, something you need to know, there's a lot going on in this verse, because Jews and Greeks did not like each other one bit. They didn't socialize. They lived in different neighborhoods. They had different cultural backgrounds. They spoke different languages. So they did not get along one bit. They didn't like each other. Same with slaves and free. They did not interact. They didn't socialize with each other. And then in the church in Corinth, if you go through there, you know that some people were following the Jews, some people were following the Greeks. So there's all this division that was going on. But if you look there in verse 13, it says, All were made to drink of the one Spirit. Capital S. You see, because Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, because He is ministering to us right now, something supernatural can happen when we all get together. Now, it's easy to be with people with whom you share a common affinity, right? There's people you've got a lot in common with. That's easy. See, that's natural. Unbelievers can hang out in groups like that. But there's something special about the body of Christ coming together and supernaturally being in community and fellowship with each other. One is natural. One is supernatural, That's why all these people can come together. That's why you can come together with people that they can really rub you the wrong way and they can be difficult to be around. And yet something supernatural can bring us all together into community and into fellowship. There's a book I've been going through with the staff and uh, some of the elders, actually all the elders, called Retro Christianity. And in that book, Michael Spiegel talks a lot about community. And I love what he says about community. He says, confusion, discomfort, frustration, uneasiness, conflict. These are the effects of true community. These conditions promote real spiritual growth. It's easy to fake the fruit of the Spirit among people we pick as fellowship partners. It's far more difficult to pretend love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control among those who irritate us and putting our natural human inclinations to the test of real life gives God an opportunity to work among us in supernatural ways. You see, that's Christian. That is Christian community. If you look at the disciples... Jesus chose one guy that was militarily loyal to Judaism. And he chose another guy that was a tax collector that had given in to the government. And he brought them together. and said, you two are going to get along and you're going to be my disciples. It's important that we are with the people of God. And you know, not just in a shoulder-to-shoulder kind of way. Last week I talked of the disease of recentism, 
uh, in American Christians, meaning that we often think that the latest and the greatest thing is, is the best. But there's another disease. It's called concertism. And it's when we come together and we simply sit shoulder to shoulder thinking that we've really developed bonds with people. You see, as much as we need to be here and have to be here to worship together on a Sunday, this still really isn't community yet. You see, community is happening in those conversations you're having in the hallways before and after the service. It comes when you meet together through the week. And it comes as you start doing life together. Now we're starting to talk about community. And you know, as, as a church grows, and as it grows larger, in some ways it has to grow smaller into smaller groups of people that meet and get together and do life together, sharing experiences together. You know, it's messy and it's hard, and it's because we're all very different. So you've got that one aspect that we're all very different, but there's something else that comes into play here too, and it's in 1 John 4, 18. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, this verse is actually speaking of the love, the perfect love that God has for us. And in that perfect love, it casts out fear. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ and our, as our Savior, and I hope everybody has. If you haven't, I'll be right down here at the end of the service. Come talk to me. But for those of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior, we have no need to fear. We can walk right into the presence of God. He's never going to judge us. And that perfect love that God has given us should be enabling us to love each other more. But see, the thing is, none of us have been loved perfectly. And I love what Jerry Root says about this. He says, the Bible says the antidote to fear is the love of God. 1 John 4.18 reminds us that perfect love casts out fear. A corollary is that imperfect love breeds anxiety. If human love demands human meriting, then each of us is freighted with anxiety. Even well-meaning associates who love us as well as they might are incapable of loving us perfectly. So I, I, don't, I, I don't really care how wonderful your parents may have been, your siblings may have been, your friends may have been. You haven't been loved perfectly. And at some point, people have failed you. You know... This reminds me of the very first time I took my dog for a walk. Me and little, little Bray Bray, Brady, my little white dog. He was a puppy. I put the leash on him, and we start walking down the street. As we're going down the street, we come up to one of these storm grates. You know, it's kind of like one of those cattle guards. It's smaller. And he tries to walk across it, and his little legs just go right down to that storm grate, and they're just kicking around, you know. He can't go anywhere. <laughs> and I got to go, and I got to pick up Brady. I got to put him back on the, on the street. And we're walking again, and sure enough, there's another storm drain. He tries to walk across it. Again, he falls in, little legs sticking around again. i got to pick him up and put him back on the street. We go, we turn around, we come back. And you know what? That dog will not get within five feet of one of those storm drains because he knows what those things can do. He knows those storm drains hurt. And some of you feel the exact same way about people. They have hurt you. And there's part of you that says, I don't want to be within 100 feet of somebody because they have hurt me. 
And Chad, you don't know what they've done. And you know what? You're right. I don't know what, what all of you have been through. Some of you have been hurt deeply by the people who should have loved you the most. And I'm sorry. I really am. I do want to say that if you will stick around, if you will give us a chance, there are people here that will love you. It's not going to be perfect. Only God can love you perfectly. And some of you may need to see, may need to see counseling. If, it's, if the hurts run so deep that you just have a, feel zero chance to trust anybody, you might need to get some help. And we can help you there too. But it's difficult. All of these things play into this mess of community. It's hard. But you know what? Just because it's hard doesn't mean we don't do it. We're still made for it. We still need to see and understand what good community looks like. So I also want to talk about these marks of community. What makes for good community? I want to start out in uh, Colossians 3, 12, and 13. Because in, this, in these verses are some attributes of, of great community. And it says there, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So we see actually eight marks of community uh, in these passages. And the first one we see is these compassionate hearts, compassionate hearts. Well, what does that mean? Well, that literally means tender heartfelt compassion for someone. And I love what it says in Romans 12, 15. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rejoicing and weeping with people. This is such an important mark of community. And sometimes, frankly, it can be much harder to rejoice with those who rejoice than it is to weep with those who weep. I remember for years my wife and I uh, struggled with infertility, and during that time it was incredibly hard for us to rejoice with those who rejoice. And yet that's what we're called to do. Now you cannot do that apart from community. You've got to know what people are going through in order to be able to do this. And if we're going to be very honest, there's a sinister side to this too. There's this German word schadenfreude, and it literally means taking joy in someone's hurt and demise. Now, that's absolutely, there's no place in the Christian life for this. But we have to have these compassionate hearts. So for true community to happen, we have to have compassionate hearts for each other. We have to love each other and know each other's lives enough that we know what's going on in each other's lives. And then secondly is kindness, okay? This is all about how we're treating each other with a sense of love and a sense of benevolence. This is about being eager to meet the needs of someone. I saw this, I see this happen in this church all the time. I see people loving other people to get them meals, to, to take care of them when they, they need a place to stay. Uh, we need to be practicing this more often. In addition to that, it's humility. This, this goes along with treating other people better than yourselves. That's our attitude towards each other. And then also gentleness, gentleness. This is about not seeking revenge when you really want to seek revenge. 
This is about not lashing out at someone, even though it's like your first temptation. Meekness. Now, meekness is a term that we don't often use, uh, but it has to do with, uh, it's almost as though it's a feeling of lowliness. And I like the way John Piper defines meekness. He says, meekness loves to learn, and it counts the corrective blows of a friend as precious. And when it must say a critical word to a person caught in sin or error, it speaks from the deep conviction of its own fallibility and its own susceptibility to sin and its utter dependence on the grace of God. Just think if we had this attitude. If we were meek, what would we be putting out on Facebook? In addition to that is patience. Patience. Some, some scriptures, actually some versions of what I read will say, we bear with one another. We put up with one another patiently. It reminds me of a story I heard of a man who was, he was pushing his grocery cart down the aisle, and he had a, a young boy in the grocery cart, and the, the young boy was just going nuts. He was yelling, and he was screaming. He was pulling things off the shelves onto the floor. And the whole time all this was happening, and, and, and other customers were kind of giving them plenty of space because the cans were flying, the whole time the, the, the husband, the, the, the father's pushing that cart saying, okay, Donald, be calm. You're doing okay. Just, just settle down. And finally, a woman who had heard what he was saying was so impressed that she walked up and uh, she, she whispered to the little boy saying, uh, Donald, why are you so upset? And the man leaned over and said, oh, his name's Henry. I'm Donald. I'm the one that's trying to... <laughs> to deal with all this. I'm trying to stay calm in this. That's patience. And then forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's a sermon in and of itself. Forgiveness is difficult. It's hard. It's when grievances come up, and they are always going to come up between us. There's always going to be conflict. But forgiveness is when we are decide and make the choice that we are not going to hold that against that person. That's forgiveness. We can forgive because Christ forgave us. What helps me to forgive? And I do not do this perfectly by any means. I struggle with grudges. I have to remember, for what did Christ forgive me? Things that no one knows about. Things I have said that haunt me. Because Christ forgave me of these things, then I can forgive other people. And then finally encouragement encouragement and this i want to read one more verse first thessalonians 5:11 it says therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing you know how you encourage somebody it's really pretty easy you just ask yourself the question what would encourage me and then you go and do that for somebody else that's the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you that's how you encourage somebody ask yourself well, what encourages me what could I hear today that would be encouraging? And you know, if, somebody, if you think of somebody, don't hesitate to, to offer that person a word of encouragement. So all those eight things, these all are marks of community. So, so putting this all together, be in community by joining a community group and loving fellow sinners. Loving fellow sinners. We're all in this thing together, and none of us are perfect. I want to mention to you that we are 
in the business of making more opportunities for there to be communities. So one thing that we have started here at First Baptist, I've talked to the staff and the elders about this, we've taken the preliminary steps of seeking a community life pastor. So I would ask that you join me in praying about who that person is going to be, who would God have us to add on to our staff here that would provide, that would provide more opportunities for community. Now we do have community groups, and I do hope that you'll join one. As a matter of fact, we have a great opportunity for community on June 8th at a work day here at the church. So if you're not currently in community, I've found that working alongside somebody is a great way to get to know them. So these are all chances for you to be in community, opportunities for you to love somebody, a fellow sinner just like you. Uh, in closing, I want to tell you about Aunt Jo. This is Aunt Jo. She actually passed away about 17 months ago. And for years, she was married to an alcoholic. Uh, and he was an alcoholic that was pretty well known in the community. And during those years, she never attended church. Uh, they ended up separating, and she decided, she actually told me, I'll never forget, she, uh, she said, Chad, i got to get back to church. She was, I think, in her late 50s at the time. So she went to a church there, First Baptist Church, St. Albans, West Virginia. She goes in, and this is what she told me about her experience. She said, Chad, when I went in there, nobody spoke to me. Nobody said hello to me. They treated me like I didn't even exist. She said, I walked in there. I sat down in that pew, and she said, I made up my mind right then and there in that pew that what this church needed was me. She said that I'm going to be the one to stay here and make sure that when people come, they're greeted, that no one is ignored, that everybody is going to have a place here. And guess what? You are needed by First Baptist. We need you here in our life, in our community. I hope that you have been spoken to this morning. As a matter of fact, Instead of a closing charge this morning, this is what I'm going to ask you to do after I pray. Before you leave the building today, I want you to meet someone that you don't know and introduce yourself and tell them that you are glad they're here today. And I hope that no one leaves this building untouched by somebody. Let's pray together. Lord, we are in such desperate need of you. Lord, to be healed by your perfect love. And Father, we need each other. And God, you know. Lord Jesus, you know more than anyone how it feels to be rejected by man. And God, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the courage to be in community with each other, to love each other well, in a way that would be pleasing to you. God, I thank you for everyone here today. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. You were dismissed. Meet somebody you don't know.